This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's as though the progress of our generation's post-racial society, an outcome that was never guaranteed, didn't happen. People of roughly our age have been very poor at communicating to younger people the nature of the societies we grew up in. And as you say that, I mean, there was uh, racism in parts of society, sure, but it was not by any means this sort of entirely white and racist society that is now depicted. And it hasn't been for a very long time, if it ever was. Um, when I was growing up in Britain in the 80s, popular culture was very diverse. And not, not just in music or in football, but in almost everything. You know, the evening news on the BBC was read by a black woman. Uh, the evening news on ITV was read by a black man. We didn't think anything of it. And then I, was, I went to school in London, to state schools first, and very diverse and grew up with black friends in the playground. And then everything in the last 20 years has been slowly turned around, as I show in the book. And societies that were on the cusp, at least, of being post-racial instead became hyper-racialized. All the narratives and the norms, the assumptions which underpin our understanding of the societies we grew up in, are under attack from within. Douglas Murray is the best-selling author of The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity and Islam, and The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. And now, The War on the West, How to Prevail in the Age of Unreason. He examines how Western civilization and its achievements in culture, science, medicine and free thinking, not to mention how they were so hard fought for and won, are being challenged by universities, corporations, broadcasters and the public sector in general. A willful self-immolation. And much of it is being fought through just one prism. Race. And these anti-Western attacks also attack Jews and Israel. The terrifying nature of anti-Semitism is the way in which it shapeshifts. It goes from right to left. It goes, it goes um, again. It, it can, it can attack Jews for being too well off and for being too poor. It can attack them for being too assimilated and not, and for not trying to assimilate. It, 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 Jews will get it from every direction. And, and as I always say, anyone who says as occasionally various Labour politicians trying to put Jeremy Corbyn into power would say, they would say things like, we are, we are certainly going to stamp out anti-Semitism, we're going to end anti-Semitism. They'd make these sorts of claims and I would always say anyone who says such a thing must know nothing about anti-Semitism. I mean, you must know nothing about it if you could make such a facile statement. End anti-Semitism? I don't think so. But his view isn't one-sided. He welcomes a debate based on reckoning, but not revenge. But what's the purpose of it all? When will this debt be paid off by Western nations and their biggest populations? And what's the end game? What are the consequences? And what do we do? Is there a way to reset? And if some of these progressive arguments prevail, can we all continue to live together in tolerance? Before you pack your bags, let Douglas present his arguments. Jewish people have the option of a homeland in Israel. Not all want to do that, of course. The diaspora is very strong and, and very deep and goes back a long way in many, many countries. Uh, but I think it is important also that, that uh, people recognize that other peoples also have a desire for statehood and nationhood and have the right to celebrate their own traditions and to that extent, you know, lots of people have their own covenants, effectively. Uh, Jewish people have theirs, um, Jewish-British people have theirs, non-Jewish-British people have theirs, and much more. And, and if, we can, if we can see a way to respect each other across those divides, and I think we can, um, then we should, we should do so and should unite against the people who would use a minority as effectively a battering ram against uh, society. And while you're listening, why not subscribe to Johnny Gould's Jewish State and scroll back one episode for Ambassador Ron Dermer.
Identity is contagious. I think when you're with somebody who is proud of their own identity, proud of their faith, I think it's contagious. And other people start becoming proud of their identity and proud of their faith. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. Douglas Murray, a warm welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Very good to be with you, Johnny. Uh, The War on the West is the third book in a series of bestsellers with a very common theme, the thread, I feel, between the strange death of Europe, the madness of crowds, uh, and this book is becoming clearer as you read them all. It's it's a kind of blindsided attempt to abolish the world that we grew up in. Hmm. Yes, uh, I think that's right. It's about a, a very significant set of changes that have gone on in our lifetime. Um, a transformation of much of the deep substructure of our societies and cultures. Uh, Obviously, in the, in the uh, strange death of Europe, I addressed the question of immigration, and which I think is going to be one of is already and will continue to be uh, one of the great issues of the 21st century. Um, what happens when the developing world wants to move to the developed world? Um, then, in the madness of crowds, I addressed the deep identity politics shifts that are going on, whereby people are encouraged not to identify as you know belonging to a nation, but to uh, particular minority subsets of gender, race, identity. Uh, and this is this is very much the culmination of those three books because I think the biggest story going on underneath all of these things is this assault on what was recognizably a Western tradition, a set of values, religious values, uh, philosophical values, cultural values, which in our own day have been um, assaulted at every single uh, stage, every term. And I try in the War on the West to explain what it is that has been happening and uh, what it is that people can do to uh, fight back. It seems to me that those who are unthinking, those who are easygoing people are being the first to be assaulted. In other words, you have to really Mm. be deep into understanding this to take this on. People's assumptions are being flattened, actually, by this attack from all sides. That's right. That's right. Um, I think a lot of people found it rather bewildering. Uh, and one of my self-appointed tasks is to try to explain these things that are going on underneath the, the ground that we're standing on, uh, what the deep changes actually are, why they've come about. And every day's news is filled with the results of this attack on the Western tradition. Um, sometimes it's another historical figure who we're told is no hero and is actually to be regarded as a villain, literally sometimes pulled down. Um, other days it's um, aspects of our culture that we're told, you know, is, is not permissible or is to be regarded in a negative light because it's allegedly stolen, uh, that, uh, that our culture is all appropriated from other cultures. And these things and much more are going on all of the time. And of course, one of the questions I ask in the book, one of the issues I raise is um, not just what a strange thing this is for us to be doing to ourselves. And and I stress it is mainly us doing it to ourselves. It's it's Western anti-Westernism that I find most interesting because most destructive. But there is the follow-on question of what's the rest of the world doing whilst we're doing that? It's it's a wonderful book, if I might say, Douglas. And it's written with your characteristic humour as well as something which kind of makes one angry, actually. So, so what is it in your writing that, uh, that you can write mm. with humour at the same time as actually making you um, really quite annoyed with what you see around you? Frustration, actually, mm. in, in people who are your friends, who don't see it as you do in, in that way. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, partly that's just the way I look at the world. I mean, I, I, I do try to both be realistic and also laugh where you can. Um, uh, but I also think, I mean, it's just as a writer, it's very important that uh, books, uh, articles and things don't feel like homework to the reader. I mean, obviously, one wants to impart some ideas which are, which are very deep uh, and, uh, um, and very, very troubling. Uh, but you can't just do that because otherwise um, people, apart from anything else, you know, 
reach for the Prozac. Um, <laughs> I, I, I try to make people laugh where they can. And, and also at times that's just that the, what I'm describing hands that to us. I mean, um, uh, many of the things I describe, which have become movements in our day, are are ludicrous. And by the way, one of the things that's happened with this book and the last book, The Madness of Crowds, is that uh, I've done the audio book and I've had terrific responses from, from listeners. Uh, and uh, one of the great things about audiobooks is that there are some things on the page that are even funnier, if I say so myself, uh, when read out loud. And that's not because I'm not praising my own jokes or something. I'm, it's because <laughs> the things I'm quoting are so absurd at times and have been made so mainstream. Uh, but, I mean, to read them is, is to uh, do a double take, but to listen to them read out loud, you think, what? What insane person could could utter such an idiocy? So there, so there is some fun to be had along the way, for sure. And I, I think it's necessary also, just as a writer, the change of pace in a book. You need to, you need to to keep things mixed up like that, as I say, in order in order to keep people engaged. I mean, I'm very, very blessed with the size of readership I have and the uh, and the, the breadth of my readership, including particularly the young readership that I have. Um, and I think in part that, that is because I try to make sure that, you know, what I write is informative, is serious, is important, but also, um, also you know, um, as readable as possible. I bought two versions of The Strange Death of Europe, the hardback and uh, an updated paperback cover for my mum, who was very taken with your uh, articles in the Daily Mail. And... I think what would be a great idea is if uh, we could have your voice in our head with an italics version with which to describe your consternation. That would make it even more entertaining in the red, <laughs> in the, in the red version. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that to be honest really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to be truth tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either Patreon.com/slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. Ko-fi.com/slash Johnny Gould. Um, now, the, the clues are out there for those of us who delve into the extreme left Twitter echo chamber. You see the term, and this one actually scares me somewhat because this is what I mean by blindsided. You see this term on the hard left, organize, 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 mm. as mm. though they're taking advantage of a power vacuum. And, mm. you know, th this, this scares me somewhat because uh, if we go back to our ideas of the West being that of borderless freedom. I think perhaps the Russian invasion of Ukraine is an example of our complacency. You know, people do mm. hate us in the West. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. Israel and Ukraine is an example of two similar sovereign nations with absolutely massive and more powerful enemies surrounding us. And of course, if Israel didn't defend itself in the way that it did, mm. it would be attempted to be invaded and flattened mm -hmm. like Russia is doing to Ukraine. Mm. Yes, I um, sometimes people have asked me, you know, well, what is the West? 
and of course it's, it's sort of inevitable it comes up and i don't like like getting caught on on it because the problem with definitions is you can get caught on them endlessly um my shorthand for it is well you know it when you see it you know you know you know when you're in beijing you're not in the west you know when you're in tokyo you're in an extraordinary place but you're not in the west um uh, but of course if you were to have a sort of in in a, 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 a not fulsome, but as useful as you could shorthand, it would be that the West is a product of the Judeo-Christian tradition and the uh, the legacies of ancient Greece and Rome, all refined in the fires of the Enlightenment. And um, obviously Israel is, is a country which, as people know when they're there, is, is much more like the West than it is, say, the rest of uh, the Arab world, I would argue. Um, certainly it's more Western than it is Chinese or, um, or Japanese or Asian, uh, or, you know, and, and, or South American, you know, it, 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 it's, it's very much a, a, a part of the West. And I think that that has always been one of the things that, of course, makes some anti-Israel activists sort of try to draw a line of guilt, you know, sort of um in the same way they attack israel for being capitalist as if that's a sin you know and and um and the interesting thing of course is that israel is is a rare country in, in the west uh, in that it does buck many of the trends that i describe in, in the war on the west i mean it actually it bucks some of the trends i described in the strange death of europe i mean there isn't a there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in israel um for instance as there, there is in, in most european countries um, they're actually, I would say, although Israel certainly has internal dynamics, um, uh, which you can see when you're there for long periods of time. Uh, nevertheless, I think that in Israel, partly because of the army and people's service in the army, there is a strong feeling of nationhood. Um, there is a strong feeling of national belonging and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to um, unite its people. Uh, and and so in these ways, you know, Israel is an unusual country in the West in the 21st century in that, you know, as people have said before, it remembers what you need to do to sustain yourself. And in part in Israel, that's by simple dint of the fact that it's a such threat from its neighbors and, and, and always has been. The rest of the West has become uh, lax about that, has not has not um, remembered what people behave like in history, what it's like when you're. Uh, when you exude weakness and and internal division and much more, I wondered at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine whether that would be some kind of wake up call. But as so often, at what what you think what you hope are going to be wake up calls, so often turn out to be uh, disappointments and business as usual. Melanie Phillips in my podcast called Israel the Last Man Standing for the very metrics mm. that you talk about the idea of the fertility rate being three children per mm -hmm. woman but not just in the religious community as you might expect yes. also the the tel aviv the the cool yeah, easy going yeah, yeah. liberal community That's as well right. so uh, people may find this a little far-fetched but i think of israel as potentially the last man or person standing in the west because if you look at the west it is literally dying on its feet look at the birth rate Basically, it is below replacement rate in central in, in, in Western many countries in Western Europe and in America. Whereas Israel, three point something children per woman, including in secular Tel Aviv. And you know, this is a country, you know, in Israel, it's a it's a country which is optimistic. It actually believes it has a future. Yes. And so its birth rate is booming its economy, it's booming. Its happiness index is very, very high. This is extraordinary. It's it's an amazing thing. And, and of course, it isn't just the Jewish population of Israel that feels this brotherhood, this kinship, this statehood. There are many Arab Israelis, in other words, people who identify themselves not as Palestinians, but as non-Jewish Israelis, Arab Israelis or Christian Israelis, indigenous people from what is now the modern state of Israel, Christians from Nazareth, from Bethlehem, who served in the IDF, even though they didn't mm -hmm. have to, mm -hmm. uh, who, are, who are part of that. Arab-Israeli Yosef Haddad, who served in the IDF's elite Golani Brigade. The second I stepped into the Golani family, I was part of the family. Not only that, back then I was among maybe five, six Israeli Arabs who joined and served and volunteered in the IDF. 
which means that the majority of the soldiers, the fighters that I was with, they were obligated to serve in the army. I volunteered. All my friends, my soldiers' friends, brothers, they not only respected that, but they admired the fact that I decided to give from my years, yeah, three years, to serve my country. Uh, but let's just knock down something in uh, your argument, because it's not the argument that you don't welcome. You, you are open-minded to all the arguments. It's just the one-sidedness of yes. it. There are so many examples, aren't there? For example, let's pick out Karl Marx as an example, mm. because uh, he was a bit of a racist, wasn't he? Yes. Well, <laughs> for, for those who have, yes, exactly. For those who haven't read the book, I mean, I, I showed, I tried to show the way in which the same remorseless set of allegations are made against basically everybody in the West's history. Everybody is guilty of connection with one or all three of the following uh, racism, slavery, colonialism. And um, and as I show in the book, I mean, this is this has been done in Britain to great heroes like Winston Churchill. It's been done to great heroes in America, like all of the founding fathers, Abraham Lincoln, Columbus, of course. Um, and uh, and this is a this is a this is common also through looking at our philosophical history. All the philosophers have been attacked from Aristotle to the to, to the Enlightenment. Everyone's attacked for the same set of, of accusations. But as I do say, it's interesting to see where this is not exercised, where these standards do not uh, get uh, practiced. Hmm. And the most obvious example, as I say, the biggest example is Karl Marx. As I say, I show. In his private and public writings, was a horrible racist. Had terrible views on slavery and on colonialism. So why why is it the case? Not that statues of Karl Marx are um, pulled down, but they actually still are going up. One went up in his native Germany just a couple of years ago, paid for by the benevolence of the Communist Party of China. Um, so 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 why would this be the case? Well, because as I try to show, uh, to a great extent, the uh, the war on the West is an entirely political war waged by some very familiar figures. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them are old-fashioned Marxists who want to tear down everything in the Western tradition, uh, claim that everything, including our financial systems, are somehow embedded in racism, and therefore smuggle in the only answer they have left, which is always Marxism, socialism, communism of some kind. Uh, so there's a there's a very perceptible double standard, which which they say once you see it, it reveals the basically political nature of this exercise. Um, but there are other I examples of the same. I mean, in the in historical terms, we uh, our societies are very interested in certain slave trades and totally uninterested in others. Um, I mean, you may say it's simply because, you know, uh, European societies were more involved in the transatlantic slave trade, but the Arab states had the Arab pre-state pre Arab societies were slaving at the same time as the Europeans and indeed um, stole, bought far more slaves from Africa than the Europeans or the Americans, or even the South Americans and Central Americans. Uh, this was um, a long and horrible trade that many, many societies, if not all, at some point were involved in. So why the monomaniacal obsession with, 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 with just this as one aspect of our own past? Why, when colonialism was something that societies have engaged in you know, from the beginning, uh, why, why are we so completely obsessed with some forms of colonialism, only if they're Western? And, you know, understandably, nobody thinks it's a sane or reasonable thing to say, well, one of the biggest empires in history and one of the longest running was the Ottoman Empire. Therefore, all modern day Turkish people should pay some kind of reparations. I mean, it'd be the statement of a madman to insist on that. Yet, yet we do it to our own societies. Again, it's this endless set of double standards. And I reiterate the point you kindly made, which is that I'm not trying to shut any debate down. Uh -huh. I find revisionist history can be provocative, interesting, um, sometimes well-informed, and sometimes a useful corrective. What I mind is the wild political antagonistic nature of the revisionism that's going on at the moment, so that everything to do with colonialism is put in a negative light, you know, so that everything in our history is looked at through the lens of racism. And instead of saying, well, okay, racism has been an aspect of our history as it has been of everybody's history. Instead, we say that is our history, that, colon that, 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 that racism is the only lens to look at the Western past through. Mm. Uh, the, these, are, these are deeply unfair standards. Uh, they've been practiced for a very long time now. 
and I think it's time to pull them apart in turn. And dare I say the world is coming together in a celebration of slavery, as an example. Now, I'm talking about the Qatar World Cup in the winter. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The first ball is kicked in anger on the first day of the perverse World Cup, but because it's being kicked off in uh, sort of December as opposed to when it normally is in June because it's so damn hot in mm. Qatar, it will be sports washed in the most dramatic of fashions of all time. Yes, um, yes, yes absolutely. I mean, that's it's a very interesting point. I, I make the point in, in The War in the West that, you know, uh, there are the estimated to be something like 40 million slaves in the world today. I've actually met people myself on my travels who were born into slavery. Um, 40 million slaves is actually more than were estimated to be around in the 19th century. Uh, so this is none of this is about what aboutery, as some of my critics might like to pretend. It's saying, well, whilst we're doing this, why do we seem to have no interest in dealing with the issue of slavery, for instance, in the modern world? Why do companies like Apple and Nike um, grandstand about racism and allegations of racism in modern America? and have factories, sweatshops in China. Uh, what exactly is going on here with this endless double standard? And the example of that is, again, is a kind of whitewashing, the sort of paying of the, 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 the you, you know, sort of like a medieval church as a sort of paying of, of a type of tax um, in order to excuse your other sins. Um, and and this is this is something going on in our day. I think it's extraordinary that Qatar, which I've been to and I've seen, you know, the 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 bif uh, what how do you call it? I mean, the totally bifurcated nature of the society. Um, why does this get no no attention? I mean, the the people who are brought in essentially as slave workers from Asia are, are, um, are certainly not treated as equals. They're certainly not allowed. Uh, uh, to become citizens or have the rights of citizens or anything like it. Mm. It's a type of modern day slavery. And it's one you can't really interest people in. So I would be expecting that all the people who, you know, took the knee for months and months on end because they thought that in America, the police can just kill black people with impunity, which is a, an unbelievable lie against America. Uh, I would expect those same people to sort of... Um, keep very quiet in Qatar. By the way, I've seen that myself. And I mentioned in the book when I spoke uh, uh, in Doha some years ago, uh, I said to my fellow panelists before the debate in front of the Emir's wife and other members of the royal family, I said, I said, I hope you'll agree with me that, you know, we can't allow this debate, uh, which was about migration, to go on tonight without mentioning anything about the human rights records of our hosts. And the others said, oh, yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. Did anyone else speak up? nada zilch silence uh, and i was the only one who made my myself unpopular with my host by by pointing to some of these facts but that's normal that's totally normal um people go along with modern day um atrocities um and uh, by way of satiating their consciences uh, they talk endlessly about wounds which in many cases i would argue are long since or should be long since closed and our Western societies as well are, um, as you say, uh, they have evolved into a post-racial environment. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a tolerance, actually, and, and Brenda O'Neill discussed this with me in, in, in my mm. podcast. We think of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, indeed in this country, of uh, Millwall and Two-Tone. The, the, um, the redefinition of anti-racism away from... Uh, a very noble cause, a very unifying cause, which was about recognizing our human connections and forgetting about our racial differences. The shift away from that towards an anti-racism, which is about um, who's a privileged group and who's a oppressed group. Um, Hindus are privileged, but Muslims are oppressed. Jews are privileged. And, uh, you know, this racial categorization of everyone, that is so destructive, so toxic, and it's actually rehabilitating racism in new ways and i think that's when the left talks about being anti-racist i think actually what they mean is that they are politically correct racialists in the sense that they yeah. understand the world in racial terms yeah. and that i think is incredibly dangerous we think in the united states of, yeah. of, of motown and the williams sisters and i mentioned millwall and two-tone because I am from Birmingham and I remember in the 80s, Black and White Unite, Two-Tone had the black and white checker, not because mm. it was trendy and looked beautiful, that was one level, but it was the fact that all our bands 
were black and white because it was mm. a, a union mm. of the working class. I went to a grammar school on that premise, actually, that um, you could get yourself what seemed like a, a public school education from wherever you were. And the kids were so new to England. They mm. were born in Birmingham, these guys, but they had the accent of their parents. It mm. was half Birmingham and half Punjabi, half Birmingham, yeah. half Irish, half mm. Birmingham and half West Indian and me. Uh, it was fully <laughs> at the time. Mm. But the point about it is, I feel so very, very sad at this grievance style, mm. um, anti-racism, yes. as opposed to being against racism. And uh, mm. the Mill, I mentioned Millwall because, of course, uh, for years and years, their best player was their skipper, Danny Shittu, who was their player of the year. Um, mm. Everyone was used to each other for a very, right. very long time. It's so well, that, sad. Yes. That's a very important point, um, and and uh, in our own era, and and, and I describe some of how this has happened in the book. Uh, um, people of roughly our age um, have been very poor at communicating to younger people the nature of the societies we grew up in, and as you say, that I mean there was uh, racism in parts of society, sure, but uh, it, it was not by any means this sort of. Um, entirely white and racist society that is now depicted. And it hasn't been for a very long time, if it ever was, in a country like Britain. You know, the um, uh, it, it's one of the oddities of, of, of uh, so-called anti-racism, that people lambast the societies most, which are the least racist. Because by the nature of it, if people were racist, they wouldn't care if you said they were racist. People in societies like Britain care about it because we're not. Um, you know, it, it, when I was growing up in Britain in the 80s, um, popular culture was very diverse. And, and not, not just in music or in football, but in almost everything. You know, the evening news on the BBC was read by a black woman. Uh, the evening news on ITV was read by a black man. Uh, the main children's entertainer um, was, was, a, was a black, uh, young black guy. And um, we didn't think anything of it. And then I, was, I went to school in London to state schools first. And and uh, they were very diverse and grew up with black friends in the playground from the beginning. It was, it, it, we, were, we were dreaming of becoming if we had not already become a post-racial society. And then everything in the last 20 years has been slowly turned around, as I show in the book. And societies that were on the cusp at least of being post-racial instead became hyper-racialized. And uh, the way that happened is very, very interesting, and historians will pore over it for a long time to come. But one of the one of the reasons is that countries like Britain, in particular, imbibed a specific race war that was ongoing in America, and all of the Western countries followed suit. We we basically um, took onto ourselves an element of the ongoing racial uh, disputes going on in the United States, uh, so that. You know, in the last decade, the BLM movement, for instance, which has, uh, which, you know, there is a debate about its utility in the US, there's certainly a debate about what it's done with its, uh, its the goodwill it had, um, but uh, it does not have a viability in the UK, but of course we had BLM protests in the UK, uh, where um, people just transplanted this American culture war straight onto the streets of British cities. And that's that's been a constant in recent years. I say the sort of embedding of a specific American dispute, um, which has ended up just washing across, particularly the English-speaking Western democracies, because we are so um, vulnerable to all all American cultural exports. It's extremely sad, and to this day, uh, the knee is taken at football matches, and the Premier League's decided to wash their hands yes. of any responsibility. I mean, by you know, why? players. Yeah. I mean, why? What, um, are they, what do they think they're doing at this stage? I mean, um, we don't have... It would be odd if we had two minutes silence at the beginning of every game to remember British servicemen killed in the last 20 years. It would be more justifiable, much more justifiable, but people would probably say, OK, we, we, we've done that a few times. We don't need to keep doing it. Why do they keep taking the knee? Why do they keep doing it? They can't stop. Uh, the, the, the arrest and, and, and killing of George Floyd was appalling. The man responsible for it has been tried and convicted and sentenced in an American court. End of the matter. 
as far as taking the knee goes. Um, but they just they just can't stop. I think they think at this stage that if they do stop, they will be racist or accused of racism. It's pathetic. Very true. Um, and it continues now in the hands of the players. And of course, the, you know, there'll be no player that stops it because they'll feel it's above their pay grade and their pay grades are quite, quite big. I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely. Well, it's, it's a great, the great combination of being overpaid and needing to over signal about things. They, they go hand in hand. <laughs> That's why Hollywood celebrities and others also are the, the least adept at, at, at weaving through the intricacies of our age because the costs of slipping up even slightly are so high. Whereas the, um, the uh, the uh, accruing of money for literally bending the knee to whatever the current thing is 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 easy to do now you go into some detail of what you call the anti-western frenzy of the durban conference and mm. it's fascinating to read your take based upon the uh, editorial parameters of your book the war of the west uh, as I did in terms of the editorial parameters of, of my podcast, Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's mm. something that we've covered in detail. And in fact, it inspired the formation of Professor Gerald Steinberg's brilliant mm. NGO monitor. Yeah, which I'm on the advisory board of. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Well, uh, of course, it is this Durban conference, and there have been a number through the decades since. Uh, this is where anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism uh, were, were kind of uh, created this new na anti-Israel narrative. They had three different parallel conferences. The NGO Forum was where the language of the BDS movement was first created and where it began. Among the most active organizations was a group called Human Rights Watch. But they became, because of the obsession of the head of human rights and Roth, Human Rights Watch delegation, along with Amnesty and, and some Palestinian groups, promoted the BDS movement. Come on, man. You're a waste of time. You're a Zionist, man. You're, You're racist. You're a person. You're a person, and I you don't hate Zionist. you. I don't hate you. I hate you because you're Zionist. I don't hate you because you're Jew. I don't hate you I have no problem. Are you a... Do you hate Nazis? Do you hate Nazis? You don't hate Nazis. Well, there's nothing to talk about. Then it's easy. Then it's easy for you to be a Zionist if you don't hate Nazis. It's easy for you to be a Zionist if you don't hate Nazis. And it's where your book very succinctly talks about the anti-Western uh, sentiment. Yeah. And, and this is where this intersection uh, collides, doesn't it? It was very yes. interesting to read uh, the Western uh, analysis of mm. that very same conference, which uh, Jewish people yeah. uh, who are Zionists, which is the vast majority of Jewish people, have been fighting actually ever since. Yes. Yes, the, the, the Durban conference happened in the days before 9-11. And uh, because of 9-11, some people forgot about it. Um, and uh, it sort of, and, then it, and it got almost washed into the mainstream. Um, but uh, it was an orgy of anti-Westernism as well as anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. All of these things were tied up with each other. Anti-colonialism, you might add as well, because all of these things got, uh, um, got, uh, got gathered together you know, various dictators and despots, uh, people like Castro, Mugabe, Flotsam and Jetsam of the Cold War and of the post-colonial world, all turned up and lambasted Israel, lambasted the West, called for reparations, um, uh, you know, uh, called Zionism racism and much more. And they, they just, this was just an orgy of anti-Westernism primarily. Anti-Semitism I, I came, came along as a very, very important component of it. But essentially it was a conference of revenge. Um, I, I quote Nietzsche at one point in the war on the West saying, you know, the, the, the people who talk of justice, but mean revenge. Uh, uh, or Durban was about revenge and the successive iterations of Durban have all been the same thing. There are attempts by bits of the developing world to have an act of vengeance taken out against the developed world. Uh, Post-colonial societies, which have gone well, by the way, never indulge in this. You won't hear calls for reparations in Singapore uh, because Singapore's done well. Hmm. 
you hear for call, uh, you heard Durban and elsewhere calls for reparations from, for instance, Robert Mugabe, because as Mark Stein joked at the time, there were some African leaders who thought it would be useful to sort of persuade the, the white Westerners to send money to their country and others like Mugabe who would have thought it was a bit more convenient if you just sent it direct to their Geneva-based bank account. <laughs> um, but, but that was basically what it was. It was a shakedown, an attempted shakedown. Um, and unfortunately, and I'm hoping that my book helps to, to change this, there's been too much in recent decades of people in the West just sort of kowtowing to these demands. Um, there's been a sort of unwillingness to stand up to them. Uh, and I think it's high time people did stand up to them uh, and said, um, sorry, we're not doing games of historical iniquity. We're not doing games of historical revenge. We're not having games of historical guilt. If you want to pretend that people born as I was in the post-colonial period in Britain are meant to carry some guilt. No, I don't. We don't. It's over. It's done with. It's in the past. Uh, we, we paid down our debt. We paid down our debt with slavery in the UK, more than paid down our debt for the 19th century. And when people come along now and say, you never addressed this, my answer is, you don't know we've addressed it many times. It's just you're ignorant. You don't know that fact because you haven't bothered to inform yourself of that fact. But this is done. This is settled. And we are moving on, even if you are not. And Douglas, your voice is sizable, your platform is growing, but why are people like us so out of fashion? Why isn't there such a bigger counter argument? Why are why are, are fair-minded people being trounced so much within the institutions, within these corporations, oh. within well, those the are NHS, things. you know, wherever those you go? Those are different things, Johnny. Uh, uh, those are two different things. Uh, I don't feel unfashionable at all. Um, or unpopular, my, my, my books sell much better than those of most of my enemies. So um, for the silent majority, we're, we're okay, are we? Uh, so look, the majorities are fine. The majorities are fine. I think they should stop being silent. I think right. one of the things about majorities is it's idiotic for a majority to be silent. It might be understandable why a vast, you know, an incredible minuscule minority might be silent, but why would a majority be silent? It's, 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 it's inexplicable in some ways. But the, the, the explanation is the second thing you mentioned, which, of course, is institutions. Now, that is certainly the case within government institutions, state institutions, private corporations, companies, and much more. There is an extraordinary tentativeness, a fear. And, of course, there's an explanation for that, which is that the sort of anti-Westernists are, like other dogmatists of our time, extremely vicious. And uh, um, a lot of people, if they said even a fraction of what I said or say in certain companies or positions, would, would have a mob come after them online or offline. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of cowardice from people in positions of power. They've, they've stopped making their own side in an argument. Most, you know, a lot of them want an easy life. It's easier to hand people over to the mob, as everybody knows, than it is to stand up to the mob. Um, but uh, that has to change. It simply has to change. Um, it, it is uh, unsustainable that, for instance, the civil service in Britain should be put through things like implicit bias training and all of this sort of croc stuff, which is all voodoo. It's, it's, um, it doesn't work. It can't even do what it pretends to do. Uh, there's no reason why the civil service should be doing that on the taxpayer dime. Uh, there's no reason why uh, heads of major institutions like universities should be instituting, for instance, uh, investigations as to whether or not they gained from the slave trade. Uh, why? Why do that now? Why do that now? The, the answer is almost certainly going to be yes to some extent. So what are you going to do about it? You probably gained from donations given by people who weren't democratic politicians. I mean, most of our institutions, in the, or a lot of our major institutions in the UK were founded by monarchs, by noble families. Where did their money come from? Was it entirely fairly earned? Possibly not. Okay, so where are you going to stop? Um, the people who let, lead these institutions and give these stupid uh, directives to sort of um, cover themselves in some kind of um, uh, post facto glory 
are in actual fact putting bombs under their institutions that will blow them apart. So unfortunately, the answer is yes, the majority is, is I think, fine. I think the weirdo fringe people are the, are, the, are the people who I attack in the book. They just have an unbelievably disproportionately um, prominent voice in the public discourse. Well, I think that should end, and I think it can. I was on TV on Saturday night, and I was very privileged to have uh, Kelly J. Keane in the studio with me. Oh, yeah. A very, um, um, very much admire her. Very, yes, uh, and I got to ask her all the right questions, and she defined absolutely every part of her position on trans, which is one part of the intersectional debate, which I'm, you know, I'm not quite as up on as others. And my question to her was, why don't we stand by our beds? Why don't we stand by who we are? If we remember yeah. who we are, if our first base is Christianity, or in my case, Judaism, or I don't know, just being British or being American, being Canadian, these are the things that I was brought up in at school. This is what I believe in. These things are easier uh, to, uh, to fight back with. So for example, mm. Uh, church attendance in Britain has yeah. halved in 40 years. Yeah. Why is the church surrendering and therefore creating a vacuum in which it is being swirled around in? Uh, I'm you know, delighted to say that uh, in Britain, the uh, biggest um, 10 Jewish communities of Orthodox synagogues, those of the Beth Din, are actually increasing in size, you know, despite what, uh, you know, the, mm. the doom and gloom around the country of, of, of the Jewish community assimilating. You know, there's some good news in London, at least, uh, in certain parts but but it's not such good news uh in the church of england if you uh, if you are someone mm. who passes themselves as a c of e yes well the answer is and I, I dealt with some of this in the madness of crowds but the answer is that basically one religion is being replaced by another mm. and the religion is the religion of social justice and um, intersectionalism and, and much more and it's it has its own dogmas and it has actually overtaken among other things i mentioned this in the war in the west it has among other things overtaken the church of england with extraordinary rapidity i mean it's only uh, 15 years ago, less, that uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, was opposed to any form of gay marriage, not just uh, that uh, blessed by the church, which is the church's business. Nobody should force it to bless unions it doesn't want to bless. But it was also uh, opposed to state uh, union, uh, civil marriage. Um, and, and, and by contrast, earlier this year, Rowan Williams was one of a group of signatories who said of uh, trans people that trans people are, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, on the way to a greater union with God. Mm. Very strange. Very strange. Uh, is this because he's no longer Archbishop of Canterbury and he can speak his mind more freely? Or has his own thinking evolved? Or is it possible that Rowan Williams, like so many other people, has decided to give up the old faith and jump with both boots on into the new one? Which is all about ridiculously minor issues like trans issues, which are important for a tiny number of people, but have a totally disproportionate significance in the national debate and conversation. Um, uh, you know, in, in recent years, Church of England has thrown itself into the religion of anti-racism. I, I wish I could always put anti-racism in quotation marks, because of course the new anti-racism is simply racism in a different guise. But, you know, when the current Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Justin Welby, stands before the General Synod last, you know, two years ago and says the Church of England is institutionally racist, apart from rolling our eyes, then gosh, what, what, to, to keep repeating such a banal and meaningless phrase uh, is quite something, um, even for a cleric. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to but to say but to say um, that, for instance, racism is whispered in our pews, as one of the Church of England's official reports into this. No, that no, it's not. No, it's not. That's a total lie. It's not. It's a terrible thing England's... to say about your community as well, isn't it? Yes. And here's the thing, Johnny. You see, I mean, I was brought up in Anglican. I know the Anglican Church very well, or pretty well. Um, here's the thing: if you didn't know it at all, you would probably take it by its own estimation. If you were, for instance, a young black Londoner in the 2020s, um, if the Church of England said it's a racist institution where everyone's whispering racism in the pews, you'd probably believe it and keep away, among other things. Because why would you join something that seems to be claiming to be the KKK at prayer? Um, why would you bother? The, 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 the answer is they're lying about themselves. 
Mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're lying about themselves because they want to be part of the new religion of so-called anti-racism. And by the way, I mean, it's astonishing, as they say in the War on the West, the Christian tradition has a very good, long, noble, male and female tradition of, for instance, anti-slavery and anti-racism. I mean, it has a lot of heroes going back centuries and centuries who were opposed to slavery. It has heroes for centuries who were anti-racist. Indeed, of course, as we know, not only in the, uh, in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, but right up to the period of apartheid in South Africa, it was church leaders who were leading much of the anti-apartheid movement. And a, and a bewildering array of, of, of races were involved. The Anglican communion today around the world, as I've seen myself on travels in Africa, you know, does not lack for black adherents or worshippers. So, um, when Justin Welby pronounced the national church to be the established church to be institutionally racist, his number two was the Archbishop of York, John Sentamu. Um, what are these people? What are they doing? They're giving up their own tradition in order to join an extraordinarily facile, highly politicized, ideologically deranged movement invented a few years ago. Indeed, people like uh, Calvin Robinson has decided to leave the Church yes. of England and uh, move on to another church, which uh, he's made yes. famous. I confess I hadn't heard of them before he joined them. Yes. <laughs> it's a very sad story. It is that, sad. That, that, a young, that a very talented uh, a young black British man would wish to join the Church of England as a clergyman should be a cause for celebration. And since the Church itself is trying to force quota systems on itself to improve the number of ethnic minority clergy, you would have thought they'd have leapt at, uh, at uh, embracing Calvin. But of course, he has the wrong views. And among other things, he won't agree that the church is institutionally racist. And so he had, for instance, a white female bishop of London uh, insisting that he doesn't understand. And she knows as a white person that the church is racist. What is one to say about an institution insisting, uh, so insistent on committing Harry Kerry? Douglas, do you think, I want to ask you what you think um, the future is for Jewish people uh, in the Western world, um, that justice and, should we say, uh, multi-ethnicity and tolerance suddenly seems to be shifting east. I think of the Expo in Seville in 1992, and I think, well, that's in Dubai now where Jewish people, mm. Israelis, can wear a kippah in Dubai. It's a bit more difficult to put mm. one on in Hove uh, these days. In Brighton, uh, mm. it is, mm. uh, with the uh, mm. Palestinian protests going on yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. Saturday afternoon. Perhaps something positive to say here, that actually our pure multi-ethnicity, if you talk to the array of different immigrants that have come to this country and done quite well, on the quiet, because it's uh, never the uh, it's never the successful people that make a, a great deal of noise. That actually the the the, the hope that uh, our increased multi ethnicity and our tolerance in this post racial society might just save us from uh, from this mob. Well, uh, Jews always get caught up first in any bad revolution, don't they? Mm. Any revolution. I mean. Um, uh, I, I am a great fan of uh, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, and in the middle of that stupendous work, it, it, it's quite about the darkest hours of the 20th century. It is quite extraordinary that Grossman takes time out just in a few pages right at the heart of the novel to look into the question of anti-Semitism and, um, and to explain, as he does, that the terrifying nature of anti-Semitism is the way in which it shapeshifts. It goes from right to left. It goes... It goes um, again. It, it can it can attack Jews for being too well off and for being too poor. It can attack them for being too assimilated and not for, and for not trying to assimilate. Uh, Gregor von Redstory obviously makes some of the same points in his work. But you know, it, 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 Jews will get it from every direction because and and as I always say, anyone who says as occasionally various. Labour politicians trying to put Jeremy Corbyn into power would say, they would say things like, we are, we are certainly going to stamp out anti-Semitism, we're going to end anti-Semitism. They'd make these sorts of claims, and I would always say, anyone who says such a thing must know nothing about anti-Semitism. I mean, you must know nothing about it if you could make such a facile statement. End anti-Semitism? I don't think so. 
it is it is far too um, perennial and, and entrenched. Uh, you can keep it down, but you'll never you'll never destroy it once and for all. And uh, we see that in the modern era. You know, we see it obviously in the case of Israel. Uh, Jews were attacked for being rootless cosmopolitans, and then were attacked for having a state. They were attacked for being incapable of defending themselves and then were attacked by the world successfully defending themselves. On and on it goes and on and on it will always tragically go. Um, but yes, the um, in the current era, I'm very struck by the way in which Jews get caught up in the anti-Westernism of our day in Israel and in the rest of the West. Um, I think that people have to realize this. They have to have uh, good antennae. It can come from the right as well as the left. And I've, I've uh, myself written about this again recently. There are bits of the right in America, not so much, I think, in the UK, if at all at the moment, but you always have to keep your eyes open. There are bits of the right in America which play with anti-Semitism in the same ways that parts of the left do. Um, so it can, again, it can come from any direction. Um, and and the Jews very often get caught up in almost anything. You know, the Occupy Wall Street movement goes to anti-Semitism. BLM goes to anti-Semitism. Uh, we just have to keep our antennae very alert. Jews and non-Jews. Jews and and I, and I don't like philo-Semites because I don't believe in philo-Semitism. Just friends of Jews. People are friends of the Jewish people. Um, we all have to keep our eyes open for this and. Um, and again, and to not make it a political issue, you know, it should not be a right-left thing or anything else. Um, but to have an awareness of, of of problems like this, and for and for, there is there is something important to be said in this as well, which is to stress that you know, uh, Jewish people have the option of a homeland in Israel. Not all want to do that, of course. The diaspora is very strong and and very deep and goes back a long way in many, many countries. Uh, but I think it is important also that that uh, people recognize that other peoples also have a desire for statehood and nationhood and have the right to celebrate their own traditions. And, um, you know, to that extent, you know, lots of people have their own covenants, effectively. Uh, Jewish people have theirs. Um, Jewish British people have theirs. Non-Jewish British people have theirs and much more. And, and if we can, if we can see a way to respect each other across those divides, and I think we can, um, then we should we should do so, and should unite against the people who would use a minority as effectively a battering ram against a uh, society. I, f I I I I'm very confident that there is a good enough alliance of good people of all faiths uh, who can push back against the madnesses of our time. And that the war on the West is just one of the madnesses of our time, perhaps the most serious and underlying one, but one which all of us who believe we've benefited from being in the West uh, can unite in pushing back against. And I think we'll win. I've seen unwinnable wars in my life, but this is a winnable one. Well, I, I certainly hope so. You give us a lot of courage for those of us who perhaps um, should speak out. I, I said it myself in a a recent speech I made to the synagogue, um, they asked how they could uh, uh, win the battle. And I said, well, it's not just uh, the platform for me, and I'm lucky to have radio and television and my podcast to do so, but you in the workplace, wherever you are, you can be yes. change. You can That's actually right. make that difference. Everyone is a sort of media property. Everyone has their Facebook. Everyone can Absolutely. talk amongst their community. We can get out of the echo chamber. And, and The War on the West is, is, is a fantastic book. And I must say, Douglas, I am really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much oh. for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And to all of your viewers and listeners. That was brilliant, Douglas. Thank you so much. Great. Not at all. Much enjoyed it, guys. And while you're on, did you catch these episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State? Press the subscribe button, scroll back for ex-foreign affairs and diplomatic TV correspondent, now best-selling author Tim Marshall, on the power of geography. Basically, we just really need to try as hard as we can to understand the other side and, and seek to... Uh, seek to make compromises. Um, I'll leave you with that. I actually think compromise is a beautiful word. 
Danny, the Mossad commander, and the extraordinary story of the Red Sea spies. Yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I never, I think I, I never told anybody. Danny, this is very, very beautiful, and I. <laughs> This is really going to be uh, an extraordinary interview. And the inside story on the making of Fauda. You have to go inside a difficult and a crazy places in order to, to pick and to take just one terrorist instead of bombing a whole uh, neighborhood or something like that. So you risk, risk your life. And former chief of staff at number 10 who believes remaking conservatism can unite the country once more. It's Nick Timothy. Liberalism, on one hand, can simply mean a kind of pluralism, a commitment to one another that we know we're all a bit different and therefore we have to, you know, we want to tolerate different ways of life and different views. And that, so that is the, sort of the good side of liberalism, I think. The other side of liberalism is it, it tolerates difference uh, and it tolerates pluralism as a means of progress because the trial and error those things allow means that we get a, an ever-improving society. And the danger of that is that once you think that you are set on a course of inevitable progress, then people who disagree with your view about the end point must be irrational, they must be nefarious, they must be they're stopping uh, this inevitable positive change towards this ever more perfect society. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State.